The portion of scripture on which tonight's message is based comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. And here we read, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he says, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. Now, all summer, uh, at least for 10 weeks, and this is the 10th of our 10 weeks, our last week in the series, we've been looking at the first half of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And this is the last time I get a chance to say it, so here's the summary. The first four chapters are arguably the Bible's most comprehensive statement about what God has done to solve the human problem of brokenness, lostness, and sin. And in the greatest expression of undeserved love imaginable, God sends his son to become broken in our place so that we can have our broken pieces put back together. Through faith in this son, Jesus, we have a righteousness, a rightness with God that comes uh, not through who we are, our pedigree, or what we do, our performance, but is gifted to us and is received through faith in who Jesus is and who Je what Jesus did. And we said this is the, the, the main thing, this is the gospel, the good news that all the world needs to hear. This is the solution for all humanity. The pagan world that struggles with sinful self-indulgence needs this gospel. The religious world that often tends to struggle with sinful self-righteousness needs this gospel. Uh, the people that believers tend to put on a pedestal, like the heroes uh, throughout the history of the Jews, the, the, uh, Abraham, the father of faith, David, the, the greatest king in the history of God's people, they need this grace, this gospel, in order to be saved as well. And God offers this gospel freely to all. So the Apostle Paul, after explaining uh, that solution to mankind's problem of sin that God offers to us freely, he goes on and he switches. And we said in chapter 5, he says, Therefore... And now he moves into the implications of that justification. Uh, in chapters 5 to 7, uh, he begins to address the natural reactions of that teaching of salvation by grace. And he says, the natural flesh tends to think, if my sins don't deter my salvation, 
and if my good deeds and obedience don't contribute to my salvation, then, our flesh concludes, then they must not matter at all, do they? And the Apostle Paul says, heck no, absolutely they matter. Of course it matters. Obedience to God uh, is perfectly in accord with your design for human flourishing and prospering. Obedience to God is a testament of your gratitude for all the good things that Jesus has already done for you. Obedience to God is an expression of your re- relational love to him. Every single time you fight temptation, not because you have to, but because you're so in love with your Savior, Jesus Christ, God is glorified. But we said in chapter 7, uh, it's a fight. Jesus has won the ultimate war at the cross and through his empty tomb, but there is still a battle between the two selves, the old self and the new self, that is a daily battle going on inside of the believer. And this then all brings us to Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul starts to talk about a life by the Spirit, a life driven and led by the Spirit inside of us. And if there's any doubt that this chapter of Romans is about the Holy Spirit— All you have to do is count up how many times the word spirit is used in the chapter. It's 21 times, and all but two of those times are in reference, direct reference to the Holy Spirit, the capital S Spirit. The other two times are about the the, the basic spirit of humans. But the vast majority of the time, 19 times, it's about what the Holy Spirit is doing for us and in us. And after in the, the first verse of Romans 8, which is some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, Paul declares there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't even say there will be no condemnation. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a done deal. It, it, condemnation does not even, it's not in the realm of existence for the believer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with those uh, comforting words, he then goes on immediately to start speaking about, in verses 9 and 11, the spirit uh, that God gives you who now lives in you. What an incredible statement that is. The spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, uh, that power lives in you. The same power that conquered sin and won your salvation, that spirit lives in you. The same spirit that in the opening verses of Genesis hovered over the surface of the waters guiding the creation of the entire universe, that exact spirit actually lives inside of you. And and what does that mean? What are the implications uh, that the spirit lives inside of you? Well, I'd at least encourage you to think about it like this, uh, this example. Think about it, how much things change when just another human being moves into your house. When when that person comes and lives with you, uh, how much does life change? So, for instance, about a year or so ago, I think it was, my, my brother's family came and stayed at our house for like uh, maybe about two and a half weeks. And he had just sold his place down in South Carolina. And there was a gap between the time when they closed on that house and when you can um, actually get entry into the new house. And there, that's always kind of an indeterminate you know, period at, at, on some occasions. And so I told him, John, when you move up here, uh, when you move to Waukesha near us, um, if you need a place to stay, feel free. Uh, Aid and I talked it over, and you can stay with us for a few weeks. And as finicky of a person as I am, uh, you know, there's, there's probably not too many people that I would extend that offer to. But my brother's family is super easygoing. Uh, we all get a, get along great, and uh, it worked out really well. But even with with guests that you really really like and get along with well, what happens when somebody moves in with you for over two weeks? 
you know, it changes things. Your, your bathroom is no longer your bathroom. Uh, your schedule is not completely your schedule. Every single meal has to be reconsidered. Everything is completely adjusted. When somebody moves into your space, everything in your life, to some extent, gets rearranged. Now, if that's true, if another human moves into your house for a little bit, what on earth does that tell us about if the Spirit of God actually moves and lives and dwells inside of you? Stuff necessarily has to get rearranged. Priorities have to get rearranged. Thoughts start to get rearranged. Lifestyle starts to get rearranged. And it might be a little uncomfortable even at first. But, you know, it, it, when somebody moves into your house, uh, you accommodate. And that's a little bit uncomfortable. It's actually more uncomfortable if you don't accommodate, though. If you continue to live exactly the way you lived before, um, and when you hop out of the shower, you just, you know, trot uh, right to your bedroom to get dressed and stuff like that, it, it could become very uncomfortable very quickly. In other words, it's a little uncomfortable to accompanate, accommodate the company, but it's more uncomfortable not to accommodate the company. So if the Spirit of God lives inside of you and he's trying to rearrange stuff, yeah, that might be a little uncomfortable, but fighting him is worse. Uh, the Apostle Paul is actually going to go on in Romans 12 to say that what the Spirit is leading God's people to do is to offer their lives. It's a crazy statement at the beginning of Romans 12. He says, offer your lives as living sacrifices to God. In other words, making sacrifices to God, that's, that's a, a key theme throughout the history of God's people. So you look throughout the Old Testament, you look at uh, the patriarchs that God has uh, compelled to build altars to him. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and and they're all compelled to make these sacrifices to God. But God says, you know, the fire of God doesn't really come down until they build the altar. So he says, trust me, trust what I'm doing, uh, put me first. And the fire, the spirit of God comes down you, comes down upon you, comes down upon that altar. And, and, and furthermore, for New Testament believers, if the spirit of God is living inside of you, what he's moving to do when you offer your life as a living sacrifice is lay yourself down, give yourself to him. And when you do... Yeah, could that be a little uncomfortable? Of course. Is that rearranging? Of course. But then the fire of God, the Spirit of God starts to come around. Don't, don't just sit around. Let the Spirit move you and make sacrifices and lay your life down. And the fire of God starts to come down upon the altar of your life. And this is all the big idea today of the life led by the Spirit of God. And I just have two points that I want to break the, uh, the text's teaching into. When the Spirit of God is living inside you, how does that change who you are? How does it change what you do? Okay, so there's our two points. Who you are, what you do. First of all, who you are. Uh, first point uh, under who you are is we're children of God. And you can see there I actually have, we're, we're actually little kids of God. How do I know that? Well, in verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, now, it's not just that we're children of God, because children can be pretty, um, a pretty wide-ranging spectrum of like 0 to 18. It's, Paul's saying here we're little kids of God. Uh, how do I know children doesn't paint the full picture? Well, it's because when Paul says we cry out to him, Abba, what's really interesting is that in every human language and culture throughout history, irrespective of what you know, language you natively speak, there's always a word that toddlers, uh, uh, sounds that toddlers use to express a relationship phonetically to uh, a parent. 
And the reason for that is because uh, little mouths can't say certain sounds. So the, the camp of and category of letters that fall into the m and ba and pa sounds, that's all one camp of, of phonics and, and consonants. And that's why little kids don't call, uh, they don't call, say mother and father as toddlers. They say mama or dada or daddy or papa, or baba, or abba. Uh, abba is not as much father as much as it is daddy. And basically the idea here is believers should not come to God simply as teenagers or adolescents. You know, teenagers, as, as delusional as they nonetheless can be, they have some level of self-sufficiency. They have some independence. You don't have to keep your eye on them all the time. A toddler, you have to watch like a hawk nonstop. And God says, look, I'm constantly watching over you. That's how dependent you are. And therefore, we're, we're supposed to approach God like toddlers. And what this tells us is there really shouldn't be a level of caution or formality in the way we approach him, but there's a boldness there. There's an expectancy and a trust. And there's also a humility and a complete level of utter dependency. So, First idea here is we're little kids eagerly expressing our relationship with the God of the universe. And furthermore, we're not just little kids. In a sense, we're little sons of God. And this is an issue that when translators were putting together the the NIV 2011 edition, you know, they, they really wrestle with the idea of how you use gender. Because people today are, are very sensitive, understandably, with gender pronouns, and there's a social desire to be inclusive, understandably, uh, and, and, and that desire is really high right now. Uh, and so, for instance, in older translations where you might have said mankind, you might now say all people, or where you might have said just men, you might say men and women. But this is one where we want to keep it pretty much the same, where we talk about being sons of God, and I... You know, I think for Christians to understand that, you gives you a level of being able to sort of counterculturally speak into your society. The reason Paul specifically says sons of God here and adoption into sonship instead of saying sons and daughters is because only sons legally had any legal status in first century Rome. And the point that Paul is trying to make then is whether you're a male or a female, you have full legal status as God's child. Uh, this, by the way, is, is a way in which I think modern Christians can uniquely and sort of provocatively speak into a, a modern culture in the same way that I think Christian men should have absolutely no issue self-identifying as the bride of Christ. I also think you can fairly say Christian women should have no issue self-identifying as the legal sons of God. How does that happen? Well, Paul says in verse 15, it's through an adoption process. He says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Um, Adoption was a much more common practice in Roman society than it was in Hebrew or Near Eastern culture. And in the Roman society, adoption could really take place at any age. Often, adoption took place when a wealthy adult had no heir for their estate. And adoption then basically meant five things in Roman culture. Number one. Adoption canceled any previous debts of the person who was adopted. 
Number two, the adopted party received a new name that was in direct relation to the father. So it's, it's kind of like what we do in baptism. When we're adopted into God's family, he places his triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on us. There's a, a legal name change of sorts. Number three, three uh, in an adoption, the new father instantly becomes liable also for all of the actions and behaviors of the new son. Number four, the son, however, does indeed have a new responsibility and an obligation, especially publicly, to honor and please his father. And the imagery of adoption then tells us that our relationship with God is, is completely based on a legal act by the father. It's not through our doing. Uh, it's through a legal act committed uh, and initiated by the father. But number five, the fifth part of adoption is that sons become heirs. And we see this here in verse 17. Paul says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I, I don't know if there is a more perfect biblical analogy of describing how we receive blessings from God other than heirs. heirs it's, a, it's the perfect airtight analogy. An heir is someone who inherits something when someone else dies and it becomes theirs, not because anything they've done, but simply because they had relationship with the deceased. In other words, understand how this works from a Christian standpoint. God's point in calling us heirs then is when Jesus died, uh, everything that belonged to God legally become became ours. We get blessings simply, not because of anything that we've done, but because we are relationally attached. The Spirit has made us relationally attapt, attached. And when someone, Jesus, died, we received all the blessings of God that belonged to him. What do you think it means that the entire universe for the sake of Jesus Christ, belongs to you. What does it mean that one day you will rule over all creation with Christ? Everything the risen, triumphant, ascended Christ has received from the Father belongs to us. Nothing less. Man, there, the implications of that are endless, but just for today's purposes, one very clear implication is how on earth can I possibly lament the perceived futility of my present life? When I think things aren't nearly as spectacular as what they should be, how can I possibly lament the perceived futility of my present life when what is coming to me in what, in the grand scheme of the cosmos, amounts to like an Amazon Prime delivery is that I will rule as, as kings and queens with Christ over all creation for all eternity? How can I be discouraged about whatever's going on right now? So who are we? We are little kids, and even more specifically, we are little sons of God through Jesus Christ who have been adopted into the family and through Jesus' death have become heirs uh, that everything that belongs to him for all eternity will also belong to us. Now, that's who we are. What does this mean about what we do uh, with the, the, the short length of days that we get still here on earth? When living by the Spirit, what do we do? Well, the first point here is in verses eight to, uh, 5 to 8, excuse me, Paul uses the word mind five times here, uh, which clearly that's the point of these verses. What does it mean to mind the spirit? And this is, it's fascinating because Paul is speaking again into a culture. Um, 
first century Greek philosophy had a binary way of dividing the entire world. All humanity, we're going to suggest, actually has always divided uh, the world essentially into a binary of perceived good and evil. And so Greek philosophers divided humanity into two classes. There were the enlightened people and the foolish people. Eastern mystics uh, function the same basic way. Eastern mystics had a mindset of the material and the immaterial. Of course, uh, to Easterners, the immaterial was good and the material was evil. Uh, Jews had the same kind of binary division as well, except they lumped them into different people groups. So you had uh, Israel, good, and the Gentiles, bad. And you say, okay, why does every class of people historically uh, divide the world into a good and evil kind of binary? Uh, even people do this today, by the way. I would say that our political situation, is it's not so much that we have a, a polarized political climate as much as we have a false binary when it comes to categorizing people. All humanity has always lumped pe people and things in the world into two conceptions of good and evil, a binary like that. The reason every human does that is because there is such thing, a, such a thing as a divine cosmic binary. But the Apostle Paul says it's none of these man-made ones. The true ultimate binary before God is the submission, those who submit their minds to the spirit, that is Christians, and those who submit their minds to the flesh. It's not Greek philosophy because it doesn't favor the learned. It's not Eastern mysticism because it's not like anti-material and demonizing. You know, Christianity is, is a redemption of the material to some extent. It's not Judaism because it's not alienating any particular people groups. Life by the Spirit is intended for all and accessible to all and eternally assured but presently valuable. So Paul's first encouragement in how to live by the Spirit is to mind the Spirit. Now, should probably just pause on that expression for a second because using it's a little unusual to use the term mind as a verb, but we do use it sometimes. So, for instance, we tell our kids to mind their manners. What do we mean when we say mind your manners? We're not just saying think about your manners. To mind something is to carefully, intently focus on something. To mind is to essentially like capture the imagination and preoccupy the attention of someone. And, and therefore, living by the Spirit and overcoming sin that exists in our lives, Paul says, it starts in our minds. You have to teach your mind to desire whatever it is that the Spirit desires. Practically speaking, what does this look like? Well, um, you could explain it just by uh, how you address, for instance, the negative emotions that humans face. So, for example, take the negative emo emotion of excessive worry. Now, all adults have concerns. That's just part of being a responsible adult. But how do you know worry, you know, a concern becomes excessive, an excessive worry? Well, when it becomes truly debilitating, when you have so much concern, uh, that you, you can't sleep and you can't eat and it, it routinely leads to like panic attacks and you have uh, it sucked absolutely all of the, the joy out of life. What's the real problem here? And, and by the way, I probably need to clarify this each time I, I mention this and I've talked to you a lot about my history with battling anxiety and depression. Clearly, there's a multifaceted um, cause attached to a lot of this. So I'm not at all suggesting that genetics don't play a role. I'm not suggesting that um, uh, negative thought patterns don't play a role. I'm not suggesting environmental factors or past experiences don't play a role. However, when the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, clearly God is giving us some sort of command there. 
And clearly, there's, it's very empowering to understand there's, if, if anxiety and worry to some extent is sinful and we have the ability to resist temptation, that actually is very empowering to the Christian. And part of the problem in the grand scheme of, of this excessive worry uh, is when we forget to mind the spirit. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, by the way, one of the reasons that you know that um, it's not just a circumstantial thing is that you can have things like panic attacks and excessive worry, no matter how positive your life circumstances are, and therefore the, the circumstances are not the problem. The real, the real problem, the real spiritual issue, at least, is it comes when we don't mind the Spirit. When I've forgotten that my Heavenly Father promises He's sovereign. He controls everything in the universe for our good, and he will not let something unloving come into my life. The problem is sometimes I forget that because I've forgotten to mind the promises of the Spirit. Or let me give you a different negative emotion. Uh, what about the emotion of guilt? Uh, sometimes, you know, there, there's a level of appropriateness with guilt when we do something wrong, but if we, if we wallow in guilt— uh, it, it can lead to, you know, one of the signs is an unworthiness that is driving my life constantly. So people who sometimes take on way too much, way too many responsibilities, uh, very often it's almost as if they're trying to work off or make up for subconsciously, you know, any feelings of guilt or sin in their lives. What's the problem? Well, at that point, we're not minding the spirit who tells us we are fully forgiven and renewed in Christ. And uh, John writes in his epistle that, when our hearts condemn us, we have a God who is greater than our hearts. So the point is, if we're children of God, we have to go over our feelings, over our emotions, and even over our thoughts and our logic, and we have to go all the way up to the Father's promises, and, and that's what the Spirit leads us to mind, the promises of God. Another example of, of minding the Spirit, not just with negative emotions, but also uh, dealing with things like temptations. Uh, many Christians very often try to affect their bad behaviors through what I would call like little law-centered mini-sermons. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, so, for instance, when Christians make mistakes and, and, and fall into sin, and very often they'll scold themselves and they'll like, make promises to God, and uh, they'll say, you know, they'll beat themselves up and say, God, I promise I'm never going to do that again, and, and they feel like, well, if I can just... Uh, you know, if I've broken this command once, if I can keep it 10 times, then maybe I can pay for the mistakes that I've made. Uh, and, and they spend all their time and energy um, sort of beating themselves up and promising God that they're never going to do it again, when in reality, they should probably be spending more time thanking God for the grace after you make the mistake and, and thanking God that he's never going to leave you or forsake you, no matter how many mistakes you make. The exact same thing is true. You can use the exact same mechanism on the other side of the temptation, not even just after you make the mistake, but when you're facing the temptation. Sometimes Christians consciously or subconsciously almost kind of tell themselves, they, they drive themselves into the law when they face temptation. They think to themselves, if I do that, God is going to punish me. Uh, or if I get caught, I'm going to be very embarrassed. Or if I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hate myself tomorrow in the morning. See, those, those admittedly can be deterrents, but they're just driving our temptations to the law and leveraging fear. And what's interesting is legitimately a non-believer can do that just as well as a believer can do it. You know what a non-believer can't do? A non-believer can't leverage the gospel. A non-believer can't mind the spirit, which involves driving temptations to the gospel and saying, you know, when we face temptation, but look at what God has done for me. 
look how much God loves me, how much God accepts me, how generous he has been to me, and how much he has in store for me. If that's the case, how could I possibly respond to him like this or living in this way? Therefore, minding the spirit, it, it affects the way we, we uh, look at our negative emotions and deal with negative emotions. It affects the way we face temptations uh, or, or deal with guilt. It also leads to concrete changes and actions in our lives. And Paul talks about this in verse 13 when he says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, the old theologians refer to that as the mortification of the flesh, which is a phrase I love. Mortification of the flesh. Essentially what he's saying here is that the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, leads you to kill the things that might kill your spirit. You catch that? The spirit, the spirit, leads you to kill the things that could kill your spirit. And therefore, as a Christian, you need to know who or what your enemies are and actively attack them in our lives. Some of us sort of deal with our spiritual enemies the way that um, my wife, who, my wife is, she honestly, she's tougher than me in almost every way in life. There's one way that I'm a little tougher, and it's when it comes to centipedes. And the way my life deals with a centipede in, like, the bathroom is she will climb up onto the nearest piece of furniture, and she will cry out my name no matter where I am in the house so that I can come and kill it. Uh, some of us, you know, we're dealing with our spiritual enemies the same way my wife deals with those centipedes. What we do when something bad happens in our lives or something tempting happens in our lives is we, we climb up on the nearest furniture, we just try to run away from the problem, and we cry out to Jesus and to come and take care of it for us. In reality, what the Spirit might very well be moving us to do at that point is to jump down off that counter, grab a shoe, and squash that thing. See, mortification of the flesh is ruthless, it's violent, it's complete, it is a full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. It's, it's like a declaration of war. And therefore, tonight what I'm asking you to do, just find one thing in your life. We all have something that, you know, something that is some kind of sinful thought or attitude or behavior that maybe for too long we've kind of been, you know, playing games with. Uh, something that maybe we've been trying to wean ourselves off of or, or simply trying to avoid. And nope. Spirit of God is leading us to get down there and kill it. See, the interesting thing is in God's discipleship of your life, eventually, eventually he's going to remove that sin from your life through the discipleship process. Sometimes that comes through painful experiences, or you can proactively do it up front, minding the spirit and attacking, uh, mortifying the flesh. So, for instance, I once heard a preacher uh, tell the story of, he, he said he had a friend who never wore a seatbelt. And he said he w always sort of kidded his friend about this and, uh, you know, was always encouraging him to buckle up. And the friend always just sort of brushed it off and said, you know what, I just, I just don't wear seatbelts. It's just not my thing. And one day his friend picked him up and insisted that this guy, uh, the preacher, put his seatbelt on. So the friend not only had himself buckled in, but he said before we take off, he made sure the preacher uh, the pastor put his seatbelt on, too, and, and the pastor said, whoa, like, to what do we owe this transformation of character? And his friend said that he had recently gone to the hospital to visit uh, a different friend who was in a pretty serious accident and had recently, you know, he, th he flew through the, the windshield of the car, and it required, like, 200 stitches just in his face. 
and that led him to change his behavior. Now, what exactly changed his behavior? Why did he change? Did he receive any new information? No, he uh, had heard all the statistics before about how 75% of fatalities and car accidents could have been prevented just by wearing a safety belt, and he, he knew all that information intellectually. The difference is the information had now become real in his life, experientially real. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit makes truths, spiritual truths, real in your heart and mind. The Spirit makes uh, the guilt of sin and the disgustingness of sin and the pain and separation caused by sin that Jesus experienced on the cross. He makes that truer and realer in our hearts. Uh, The Spirit also makes the grace of God and the undeserved nature of his love and the generosity and the promises of the goodness that he has in store for us. He makes that real and true so that we believe it in our hearts. That's what transforms us. Don't wait for the consequent realities of sin to become real. Mind the Spirit. Let Him make real what is good, true, beautiful for your life. Mind the Spirit to put behind the deeds that no longer make any sense for you as an adopted child, uh, as an adopted son and heir of God for all eternity. Mind the Spirit and relish who you are in Christ, perfectly righteous, everything in your life divinely orchestrated uh, right where it needs to be. Mind the Spirit, let Him control the direction of your life and build an altar of your life on which sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God might be raised. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the biggest problem we face in life is not the circumstances. The biggest problem we face in life is that we forget what you say. We fail to believe, we fail to mind your spirit. Renew our minds and make our lives altars that are truly pleasing to you. To the glory of your name, amen.